too. Leiden elsewhere especially as they were their pupils in the studios of the best masters as well as in the schools of the Karachi and other centers of art study. Italian artists of the 18th century have been called scene painters, and, in truth, many of their works impress one as hurried attempts to cover large spaces. Originality was wanting and a wearisome mediocrity prevailed. At the same time certain national artistic qualities were apparent, good arrangement of figures and admirable effects of color still characterized Italian painting, but the result was, on the whole, academic and uninteresting. The ideals cherished by older artists were lost, and nothing worthy to replace them inspired their followers. The sincerity, earnestness, and devotion of the men who served church and state in the decoration of splendid monuments would have been out of place in the service of amateurs and in the decoration of the salons and boudoirs of the rich, and the painting of this period had little permanent value, in comparison with that of preceding centuries. Italian women, especially in the second half of the century, were professors in universities, lectured to large audiences, and were respectfully consulted by men of science and learning in the various branches of scholarship to which they were devoted. Unusual honors were paid them, as in the case of Maria Portia Vignoli, to whom a statue was erected in the public square of Viterbo to commemorate her great learning in natural science. An artist, Matilda Festa, held a professorship in the Academy of St. Luke in Rome, and Maria Maradi, daughter of the Roman painter Carlo Maradi made a good reputation both as an artist and a poetess. In northern Italy many women were famous in sculpture, painting, and engraving. At least forty could be named, artists of good repute, whose lives were lacking in any unusual interest, and whose works are in private collections. One of these was a princess of Parma, who married the Archduke Joseph of Austria, and was elected to the Academy of Vienna in 1789. In France, in the beginning of this century Watteau, 1684-1721, painted his interesting pictures of La Belle Societe, reproducing the court life, costumes, and manners of the reign of Louis XIV, with fidelity, grace, and vivacity. Later in the century, Gruz, 1725-1805, with his attractive, refined, and somewhat mannered style, had a certain influence. Claude Vernet, 1714-1789 and David, 1748-1825, each great in his way, influenced the 19th as well as the 18th century. Dovine, 1716-1809, made a great effort to revive classic art. He found little sympathy with his aim until the works of his pupil David won recognition from the world of the First Empire. French art of this period may be described by a single word eclectic and this choice by each important artist of the style he would adopt culminated in the Rococo school, which may be defined as the unusual and fantastic in art. It was characterized by good technique and pleasing color, but lacked purpose, depth, and warmth of feeling, as usual in a potpourri. It was far enough above worthlessness not to be ignored, but so far short of excellence as not to be admired. In France during this century there was an army of women artists, painters, sculptors, and engravers. Of a great number we know the names only, in fact, of but two of these, Adelaide Vincent and Elizabeth Vigili Brun, have we reliable knowledge of their lives and works. The 18th century is important in the annals of women artists, since their numbers then exceeded the collective number of those who had preceded them so far as is known from the earliest period in the history of art. In a critical review of the time, 
However, we find a general and active interest in culture and art among women rather than any considerable number of noteworthy artists. Germany was the scene of the greatest activity of women artists. France held the second place and Italy the third, thus reversing the conditions of preceding centuries. Many German women emulated the examples of the earlier flower painters, but no one was so important as to merit special attention. Though a goodly number were elected to academies and several appointed painters to the minor courts, among the genre and historical painters we find the names of Anna Amelia of Brunswick and Anna Maria, daughter of the Empress Maria Theresa, both of whom were successful artists. In Berlin and Dresden the interest in art was much greater in the 18th than in previous centuries, and with this new impulse many women devoted themselves to various specialties in art. Miniature and enamel painting were much in vogue and collections of these works, now seen in museums and private galleries, are exquisitely beautiful and challenge our admiration, not only for their beauty, but for the delicacy of their handling and the infinite patience demanded for their execution. The making of medals was carried to great excellence by German women, as may be seen in a medal of Queen Sophie Charlotte, which is preserved in the royal collection of medals. It is the work of Rosa Elizabeth Schwindel, of Leipzig who was well known in Berlin in the beginning of the century. The cutting of gems was also extensively done by women. Susanna Dorsch was famous for her accomplishment in this art. Her father and grandfather had been gem cutters, and Susanna could not remember at what age she began this work. So highly was she esteemed as an artist that medals were made in her honor. As frequently happens in a study of this kind, I find long lists of the names of women artists of this period of whose lives and works I find no record, while the events related in other cases are too trivial for repetition. This is especially true in Holland, where we find many names of Dutch women who must have been reputable artists, since they are mentioned in art chronicles of their time, but we know little of their lives and can mention no pictures executed by them. A national art now existed in England, Hogarth, who has been called the father of English painting was a man of too much originality to be a mere imitator of foreign artists. He devoted his art to the representation of the follies of his time. As a satirist he was eminent, but his mirth-provoking pictures had a deeper purpose than that of amusing. Lord Orford wrote, Murph colored his pictures, but benevolence designed them. He smiled like Socrates, that men might not be offended at his lectures, and might learn to laugh at their own folly. Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough were born and died in the 18th century, their famous works were contemporary with the founding of the Royal Academy in 1768, when these artists, together with Angelica Kaufman and Mary Moser, were among its original members. It was a fashion in England at this time for women to paint, they principally affected miniature and watercolor pictures, but of the many who called themselves artists few merit our attention. They practiced but a feeble sort of imitative painting, their works of slight importance cannot now be named, while their lives were usually commonplace and void of incident. Of the few exceptions to this rule I have written in the later pages of this book, the suggestion that the 19th century cannot yet be judged as to its final effect in many directions has already been made, and of nothing is this more true than of its art, of one phase of this period. However, we may speak with confidence. No other century of which we know the history has seen so many changes such progress, or such energy of purpose so largely rewarded as in the century we are considering. To one who has lived through more than threescore years of this period, no fairy tale is more marvelous than the changes in the department of daily life alone. 
when I recall the time when the only mode of travel was by stagecoach, boat, or private carriage when the journey from Boston to St. Louis demanded a week longer in time than we now spend in going from Boston to Egypt when no telegraph existed when leper postage was 25 cents and the postal service extremely primitive when no house was comfortably warmed, and women carried footsteps to unheated churches when candles and oil lamps were the only means of lighting up. And we went about the streets at night with gin lanterns when women spun and wove and sewed with their hands only. And all they accomplished was done at the hardest when in our country a young girl might almost as reasonably attempt to reach the moon as to become an artist remembering all this it seems as if an army of magicians must incessantly have waved their wands above us. And that human brains and hands could not have invented and put in operation the innumerable changes in our daily life during the last half century. When, in the same way, We review the changes that have taken place in the domains of science, in scholarly research in all directions, in printing, bookmaking, and the methods of illustrating everything that is printed from the most serious and learned writing to advertisements scattered over all out of doors when we add to these the revolutions in many other departments of life and industry. We must regard the 19th as the century par excellence of expansion, and in various directions an epoch-making era. When we turn to our special subject we find inactivity and expansion in 19th century art quite in accordance with the spirit of the time. This expansion is especially noticeable in the increased number of subjects represented in works of art, and in the invention of new methods of artistic expression. Prior to this period there had been a certain selection of such subjects for artistic representation as could be called, picturesque and though more ordinary and commonplace subjects might be rendered with such skill such drawing color, and technique as to demand approbation. It was given with a certain condescension and the feeling was manifested that these subjects, though treated with consummate art, were not artistic. The 19th century has signally changed these theories. Nothing that makes a part in human experience is now too commonplace or too unusual and mysterious to afford inspiration to painter and sculptor, while the normal characteristics of human beings and the circumstances common to their lives are not omitted. The artist frequently endeavors to express in his work the most subtle experiences of the heart and soul, and to embody in his picture or statue an absolutely psychologic phenomenon. The present easy communication with all nations has awakened interest in the life of countries almost unknown to us a half century ago. So customary is it for artists to wander far and wide, seeking new motives for their works that I felt no surprise when I recently received a letter from a young American woman who is living and painting in Biskla. How short a time has passed since this would have been thought impossible. It is also true that subjects not new in art are treated in a 19th century manner. This is noticeable in the picturing of historical subjects. The more intimate knowledge of the world enables the historical painter of the present to impart to his representations of the important events of the past a more human and emotional element than exists in the historical art of earlier centuries. In a word, 19th century art is sympathetic, and has found inspiration in all countries and classes and has so treated its subjects as to be intelligible to all, from the favored children for whom Kate Greenaway, Walter Crane, and many others have spent their delightful talents to men and women of all varieties of individual tastes and of all degrees of ability to comprehend and appreciate artistic representations, a fuller acquaintance with the art and art methods of countries of which but little had before been known has been an element in art expansion.
technical methods which have not been absolutely adopted by European and English-speaking artists have yet had an influence upon their art. The interest in Japanese art is the most important example of such influence, and it is also true that Japanese artists have been attracted to the study of the art of America and Europe, while some foreign artists resident in Japan notably Miss Helen Hyde, the young American have studied and practiced Japanese painting to such purpose that Japanese juries have accorded the greatest excellence and its honors to their works, exhibited in competition with native artists. Other factors in the expansion of art have been found in photography and the various new methods of illustration that have filled books, magazines, and newspapers with pictures of more or less merit. Even the painting of posters has not been scorned by good artists, some of whom have treated them in such a manner as to make them worthy a place in museums where only works of true merit are exhibited. Other elements in the 19th century expansion in art are seen in the improved productions of the so-called arts and crafts which are of inestimable value in cultivating the artistic sense in all classes. Another influence in the same direction is the improved decoration of porcelain, majolica, and pottery, which, while not equal to that of earlier date in the esteem of connoisseurs, brings artistic objects to the sight and knowledge of all, at prices suited to moderate means. In America the unparalleled increase of free libraries has brought, not books alone, but collections of photographs and other reproductions of the best painting, sculpture, and architecture in the world, as well as medals, bookplates, artistic bindings, etc. within reach of students of art. Art academies and museums have also been greatly multiplied. It is often a surprise to find, in a comparatively small town, a fine art gallery rich in a variety of precious objects, such an one is the Art Museum of Bowdoin College, in Brunswick, me. The edifice itself is the most beautiful of the works by McKin that I have seen. The frescoes by Lafarge and Vetter are most satisfactory, and one exhibit, among many of interest that of original drawings by famous old masters would make this museum a worthy place of pilgrimage. Can one doubt that such a museum must be an element of artistic development in those who are in contact with it? I cannot omit saying that this splendid monument to the appreciation of art and to great generosity was the gift of women. While the artists who perfected its architecture and decorations are Americans, it is an impressive expression of the expansion of American art in the 19th century. The advantages for the study of art have been largely improved and increased in this period. In numberless studios small classes of pupils are received, in schools of design, schools of national academies and in those of individual enterprise, all possible advantages for study under the direction of the best artists are provided, and these are supplemented by scholarships which relieve the student of limited means from providing for daily needs, all these opportunities are shared by men and women alike, every advantage is as freely at the command of one as of the other, and we equal, in this regard, the centuries of the Renaissance, when women were artists, students, and professors of letters and of law filling these positions with honor, as women do in these days. In 1859 T. Adolphus in his Decade of Italian Women, in which he wrote of the scholarly women of the Renaissance, says, the degree in which any social system has succeeded in ascertaining woman's proper position, and in putting her into it, will be a very accurate test of the progress it has made in civilization, and the very general and growing conviction that our own social arrangements, as they exist at present, have not attained any satisfactory measure of success in this respect, would seem, therefore, 
to indicate that England in her 19th century has not yet reached years of discretion after all. Speaking of Elizabeth Cyrani he says, the humbly born artist, admirable for her successful combination in perfect compatibility of all the duties of home and studio, of how many women artists we can now say this, Trollope's estimate of the position of women in England, which was not in like that in America, 45 years ago, when contrasted with that of the present day, affords another striking example of the expansion of the 19th century. Although no important changes occur without some preparation, this may be so gradual and inobtrusive in its work that the result appears to have a Minerva-like birth. Doubtless there were influences leading up to the remarkable landscape painting of this century. The Norwich School, which took shape in 1805, was founded by Crone, among whose associates were Cotman, Stark, and Vincent. Crone exhibited his works at the Royal Academy in 1806 and the twelve following years, and died in 1821 when the pictures of Constable were attracting unusual attention, indeed, it may be said that by his exhibitions at the Royal Academy, Constable inaugurated modern landscape painting, which is a most important feature of art in this century, not forgetting the splendid landscapes of the Dutch masters, of the early Italians, of Claude and Wilson, the claim that landscape painting was perfected only in the 19th century and then largely as the result of the works of English artists, seems to me to be well founded, to this excellent Turner, contemporary with Constable, David Cox, DeWint, Monington, and numerous others gloriously contributed, the English landscapes exhibited at the French Salon in the third decade of the century produced a remarkable effect, and emphasized the interest in landscape painting already growing in France, and later so splendidly developed by Rousseau, Corot. Millet, and their celebrated contemporaries, in Germany the Aikenbachs, Lessing, and many other artists were active in this movement, while in America, Innes, A. H. Wyant, and Homer Martin, with numerous followers, were raising landscape art to an eminence before unknown, formerly landscapes had been used as backgrounds, oftentimes attractive and beautiful, while the real purpose of the picture centered in the human figures. The distinctive feature of 19th century landscape is the representation of nature alone, and the variety of method used and the differing aims of the artists cover the entire gamut between absolute realism and the most pronounced impressionism. About the middle of the century there emerged from the older schools to others which may be called the realist and idealist, and indeed there were those to whom both these terms could be applied, both methods being united in their remarkable works. Of the realists Corot and Courbet are distinguished, as were Pavise de Chavon and Gustave Moreau among the idealists. Millet, with his marvelous power of observation, painted his landscapes with the fidelity of his school in that art, and so keenly realized the religious element in the peasant life about him the poetry of these people that he portrayed his figures in a manner quite his own at the same time realistic and full of idealism. Macaul in his 19th century art called Millet the most religious figure in modern art after Rembrandt, and adds that he discovered a patience of beauty, a reconciling, in the concert of landscape mystery with labor. Shall we call Bastian LePage a follower of Millet, or say that in these men there was a unity of spirit, that while they realized the poetry of their subjects intensely, they fully estimated the reality as well? The Joan of Arc is a phenomenal example of this art. The landscape is carefully realistic, and like that in which a French peasant girl of any period would live, but here realism ceases and the peasant girl becomes a supremely exalted being, 
entranced by a vision of herself in full armor. This art, at once realistic and idealistic, is an achievement of the 19th century so clear and straightforward in its methods as to explain itself far better than words can explain it. Contemporary with these last-named artists were the Pre-Raphaelites. The center of this school was called the Brotherhood, which was founded by J. E. Millay, W. Holman Hunt, Dandy Gabriel Rossetti, and William Michael Rossetti. To these were added Thomas Wolner the sculptor, James Collins, and F. G. Stevens, other important artists known as Pre-Raphaelites, not belonging to the Brotherhood, are Ford Maddox Brown and Burton Jones, as well as the watercolor painters. Mason, Walker, Boyce, and Goodwin. The aim of these artists was to represent with sincerity what they saw, and the simple sincerity of painters who preceded Raphael led them to choose a name which Ruskin called unfortunate, because the principles on which its members are working are neither pre- nor post-Raphaelite, but everlasting. They are endeavoring to paint with the highest possible degree of completion what they see in nature, without reference to conventional established rules but by no means to imitate the style of any past epoch, to paint nature nature as it was around them, by the help of modern science, was the aim of the Brotherhood, at the time when the Pre-Raphaelite school came into being the art of other lands as well as that of England was in need of an awakening impulse, and the Pre-Raphaelite revolt against conventionality and the machine-like art of the period roused such interest, criticism, and opposition as to stimulate English art to new effort and much of its progress in the last half century is doubtless due to the discussions of the theories of this movement as well as of the works it produced. Pre-Raphaelitism, scorned and ridiculed in its beginning, came to be appreciated in a degree that at first seemed impossible, and though its apostles were few, its influence was important. The words of Bernard Jones, in which he gave his own ideal, appeal to many artists and lovers of art, I mean by a picture of beautiful, Romantic dream of something that never was, never will be in a light better than any light that ever shone in a land no one can define or remember, only desire and the forms divinely beautiful, Rossetti's, Girlhood of Virgin Mary, Holman Hunt's, Light of the World, and Millet, Christ in the House of His Parents, have been called the trilogy of Pre-Raphaelite art, Millet did not long remain a strict disciple of this school, but soon adopted the fuller freedom of his later work which may be called that of modern naturalism. Rossetti remained a pre-Raphaelite through his short life, but his works could not be other than individual, and their distinct personality almost forbade his being considered a disciple of any school. Holman Hunt may be called the one persistent follower of this cult. He has consistently embodied his convictions in his pictures, the value of which to English art cannot yet be determined. This is also true of the marvelous work of Bernard Jones. But although they have but few faithful followers, pre-Raphaelite art no longer needs defense nor apology. Its secondary effect is far-reaching. To it may be largely attributed the more earnest study of nature as well as the simplicity of treatment and lack of conventionality which now characterizes English art to an extent before unknown. Impressionism is the most distinctive feature of 19th century art, and is too large a subject to be treated in an introduction any proper consideration of it demands a volume. The entire execution of a picture out of doors was sometimes practiced by Constable, more frequently by Turner, and some of the peculiarities of the French Impressionist artists were shared by the English landscape painters of the early part of the century. While no one could dream of calling Constable an Impressionist, it is interesting to recall the reception of his opening of Waterloo Bridge, ridiculed in London, 
it was accepted in Paris, and is now honored at the Royal Academy. This picture was covered with pure white, in impasto, a method dear to impressionists, was constable in advance of his critics, is a question that comes involuntarily to mind as we read the life of this artist, and recall the excitement which the exhibition of his works caused at the Salon of 1824, and the interest they aroused in Delacroix and other French painters. The word impressionism calls to mind the names of Manet, Monet, Pissero, Madame, Bertie Morisot, Paul Cezanne, Whistler, Sargent, Hassam, and many others. Impressionists exhibited their pictures in Paris as early as 1874, not until 1878 were or they seen to advantage in London, when Whistler exhibited in the Grosvenor Gallery, and the New English Art Club, founded in 1885, was the outcome of the need of this school to be better represented in its special exhibitions than was possible in other galleries. In a comprehensive sense Impressionism includes all artists who represent their subjects with breadth and collectiveness rather than in detail in the way in which we see a view at the first glance, before we have time to apprehend its minor parts. The advocates of Impressionism now claim that it is the most reformatory movement in modern painting, it is undeniably in full accord with the spirit of the time in putting aside older methods and conventions and introducing a new manner of seeing and representing nature. The differing phases of painting in the 19th century have had their effect upon that art as a whole. Each one has been important, not only in the country of its special development, but in other lands, each distinctive quality being modified by individual and national characteristics. In the early decades of the past century sculpture was classic and conventional rather than natural and sincere. A revolt against these conditions produced such artists as Rodin, St. Gaudens, McManus, and many less famous men who have put life, spirit, and nature into their art. In sculpture as in painting many more subjects are treated than were formerly thought suited to representation in marble and bronze, and a large proportion of these recent motifs demand a broad method of treatment a manner often called and finished by those who approve only the smooth polish of an antique Venus, and would limit sculpture to the narrow class of subjects with which this smoothness harmonizes. The best sculptors of the present treat the minor details of their subjects in a sketchy, or, as some critics contend, in a rough imperfect manner, while others find that this treatment of detail, combined with a careful, comprehensive treatment of the important parts, emphasizes the meaning and imparts strength to the whole, as no smoothness can do, although the highest possibilities in sculpture may not yet be reached, it is animated with new spirit of life and nature. 19th century aims and modes of expression have greatly enlarged its province. Like painting, sculpture has become democratic. It glorifies labor and all that is comprised in the term, common, everyday life, while it also commemorates noble and useful deeds with genuine sympathy and an intelligent appreciation of the best to which humanity attains, at the same time poetical fancies, myths, and legends are not neglected, but are rendered with all possible delicacy and tenderness. At present a great number of women are sculptors. The important commissions which are given them in connection with the great expositions of the time the execution of memorial statues and monuments, fountains, and various other works which is confided to them, testifies to their excellence in their art with an emphasis beyond that of words. Want of space forbids any special mention of etching, metal work, enameling, designing, and decorative work in many directions in which women in great numbers are engaged, indeed, in what direction can we look in which women are not employed I believe I may say by thousands in all the minor arts, 
between the multitude that pursue the fine arts and kindred branches for a maintenance and are rarely heard of and those fortunate ones who are commissioned to execute important works. There is an enormous middle class. Paris is their mecca, but they are known in all art centers, and it is by no means unusual for an artist to study under Dutch, German, and Italian masters, as well as French. The present method of study in Paris in such academies as that of Julian and the Colarossi secures to the student the criticism and advice of the best artists of the day, while in summer in the country and by the sea there are artistic colonies in which students lead a delightful life, still profiting by the instruction of eminent masters. Year by year the opportunities for art study by women have been increased until they are welcome in the schools of the world, with rare exceptions. The highest goal seems to have been reached by their admission to the competition for the Grand Prix de Rhone conferred by L'École de Beaux-Arts. I regret that the advantages of the American Art Academy in Rome are not open to women. The fact that for centuries women have been members and professors in the Academy of St. Luke, and in view of the recent action of L'École de Beaux-Arts, this narrowness of the American Academy in the Eternal City is especially pronounced. One can but approve the encouragement afforded women artists in France by the generosity with which their excellence is recognized. To be an officer in the French Academy is an honor surpassed in France by that of the Legion of Honor only. Within a twelvemonth 275 women have been thus distinguished, 28 of them being painters and designers. From this famous academy down, through the international expositions, the salons, and the numberless exhibitions in various countries, a large proportion of medals and other honors are conferred on women, who, having now been accorded all privileges necessary for the pursuit of art and for its recompense, will surely prove that they richly merit every good that can be shared with them. A.A.R.E.S.D.R.U.P. Marie Helen, born at Flekethshord, Norway, 1829. She made her studies in Bergen, under Reich, under Tessier in Paris, and Vauhier in Dusseldorf. She excelled in genre and portrait painting. Her playing child and shepherd boy are in the art union in Christiania, the interior of Hod, 